Hang 5 Podcast, episode 26. We're in North America in the heat of the summer, and everyone's riding hard. This includes Canadian West Coast native, New York transplant, front-wheel shredder Travis Collier. Growing up in the famous Vancouver suburb flatland scene, under the watchful eye of Shane Neville and Jimmy McIntosh, Travis went on to a successful pro career, riding for the likes of We The People, McNeil, Vans, and Eastpac, to name a few. Later on, he pivoted to a design career while still riding his bike on a very regular basis. Here is his story. So, Travis Collier, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Happy yeah. to be on the show. So, why don't we start with you introducing yourself? So, yeah, um, my name is Travis Collier, BMX rider, obviously. Also a designer. I do. Mm -hmm. So, I split my life between kind of two things, between bike riding, still more, more than many people might think. Uh, and also, uh, I do product design for spirits and uh like liquor and cannabis and uh so i do a lot of that um which also keeps me very busy that's part of why i came to new york and um yeah so loving it have you listened to any of the other podcasts have i listened to the other ones yeah uh yeah i listened to jamie's uh actually it was great i uh got stuck in this shit storm of a flight fiasco on the way to the Arkansas, the US, the UCI thing in Arkansas. And, uh, but I was like, I kind of nice because when I was sitting on the plane and it was like on the, I won't even get into the specifics of the story. It's exhausting, but basically it involved like boarding and unboarding multiple planes through the, which is just the worst. And, uh, but I had my AirPods in and I was just listening to Jamie talk and it was like really calmed me down just because Jamie's like one of my best friends and he was for years. And, uh, I mean, he still is, but yeah, just like he, uh, it was just nice to hear his voice and tell some stories. And it was kind of nice to hear his, him tell those stories, like from his perspective, you know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, but then also, yeah, so Jamie, and then I listened to Frank's and, uh, I think I might've listened to one other, but yeah, those, I listened to those two dudes. They used to stand out in my mind because they're two of my best friends. So. The last two and uh, yeah, and yeah, those guys had a lot to say too. So it's good. Yeah, totally. And they both mentioned you. Oh, Frank did? Oh, I don't remember that. That's weird. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. Uh, no, he, I think he did in the, in the podcast, but he also, when we talk offline, he, he mentioned you anyway. Oh, cool, cool. I'm pretty yeah, sure Frank and I, sure. we have a long history, and there are a few people that I've spent uh, as much time on the road with as Frank. So, you know, you get to know each other, and uh, and also teammates and things like that on previous stuff. So, For sure. And you're originally from Vancouver, or Vancouver area. Yeah. Originally, or born and raised in Vancouver, and uh, and then been in New York for five years. The first question that comes to my mind from what you just said is, do you get to uh, sample some of the products you designed for? <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> ask me that. I do. I do. Yes. Uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of that, and uh, yeah, some of it is that it's sent over. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of projects. There's like the big stuff, uh, the bigger like. There's obviously the huge corporate stuff that I'm sure even you probably have in your, your cabinet right now, if you do have liquor in your house, I don't know. Um, I do. You do. Um, and, uh, and then there's a lot of independent stuff, 
Um, and then the whole cannabis world has, uh, in terms of spirits and then cannabis is the same in the sense that uh, it's kind of become like wine, like how Napa Valley is now completely not just vineyards. It's, you know, growers and stuff like that for 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 weed. So that's really cool. And uh, so there's a lot of product development, a lot of product thinking, and it's really creative. It's art, it's illustration, it's typography, it's design. It's great. It's like what I've always done. So um, yeah, a lot of fun. Really, really cool. And yeah, I get to t test it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I see uh, uh, recently in the last few days that you've posted a lot of the um, the project that you've done with some of the Vancouver brand or Vancouver area brands. So is yeah. that where you, you got your start? Obviously, you were here. So I, I'm guessing. Yeah, started out with design in Vancouver. And um, actually, my start in design was bmx was a huge part of that bmx was a huge uh springboard for me like in my design career came from bikes because um basically you know like you you start you go to university which is a whole other thing trying to go to university during the exact time when i was kind of fully in contests so it was really hard to balance university with going to the worlds or whatever for and just going to like Europe for like three, four days and then coming back for school. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I, I would do it again, but not easy. Um, but yeah, so just doing a lot of projects and then uh, and then it was kind of cool because like sponsors you had at the time would see what you were doing creatively and then they would just flow you flow you projects like you know you know, like Eastpac and Vans and things like that, that I was involved in at the time. And then they would bring me in creatively independent from bikes, like independent from my reputation as a bike rider, which was cool. Um, so that, that was really cool. And I mean, I think that, yeah, like there was that, and then there was a lot of stuff just within Vancouver and all the design stuff just started there and then it just kind of went. So it's been a lot, it's been years. Yeah, it's been great. It has, it has. Like that's a that's a good transition. When did you start biking? When did you start BMX? BMX. Ooh, I think I started riding in 1996. I believe it okay. was. That was All kind right. of like when it first, like, and and I mean, I had a race bike in '96. So racing in '96, I don't, I didn't, I entered some local race or two things like that but then i met while i had my race bike i met jason brown uh the late jason brown and uh andrew ferris and those guys and that kind of was like sort of completely changed my perspective of what i should be riding uh obviously and then it kind of just that went from there <laughs> yeah. all right so the the coquitlam crew uh, they were they were around coquitlam which is a suburb of vancouver at the time right Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, in the, in Coquitlam, it was, um, I mean, there were so many, actually, I had this conversation with Terry, Terry Adams a few weeks ago. Um, cause he, he still asked me about it sometimes just cause it was weird. Like, you know, when I first started, it was the basic house and in the basic house you would have, I mean, I can go down the list, but it was kind of an impressive list of pretty influential riders and not just flatland, like park guys too, like mm -hmm. everyone from Sato to Miron was there briefly paul buchanan and it's just it's crazy who was living there temporarily and permanently and um and then so that was for years i don't really want to skip over that because that's kind of its own story yeah, um, yeah. You, you want me to get into that 
please, please. I mean, um, I, you know, in a, in a way, I'm trying to go sort of chronologically, but we don't have to, you know, whatever pops up. But uh, you see, yeah, the original question was, when did you start? And you said they're on 96. And I'm assuming you're a teenager by at the time or. Yeah, I think barely. Like, I think I was, yeah, I guess 13, 14, really, really okay. young at the time. So, um, see, this is the other thing, too, that's really cool. What I was saying about listening to Jamie is Jamie, it, it was funny to hear his perspective on all this and all that time. Like, he, he spoke, what he spoke about was over quite a stretch of time. But in the earlier, like, we're talking late 90s, let's say, um, Jamie was... I don't, I can't remember his age, but he was in his twenties. Like he was in his mid twenties, I believe. So they were like adults where I was like a little tiny kid. So it's a very different perspective hearing of course. an adult talk about a time when I was a kid at that time. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, I was stupid. I was young. And I mean, there was a lot more, there was, it was pretty, there was a lot more of a romantic component to, to a lot of those things that were going on at that time because I was just so young and, I still hang on to that feeling. I still think it's like, I'm just going to choose to remember it how I remember it. Um, of course. And uh, yeah, like in the, in 96, 97, like after I got a BMX, my dad, my dad, um, I asked my dad, would you buy me a bike? And he kind of like dangled it over me for a little bit and made sure I really wanted it and really needed it. Or maybe I was willing to work for it a little bit, things like that. In the end, he was, my dad's great. He just, he bought me, the bike I wanted. And, um, it was a diamond back. I believe it was a diamond back black widow or something like that. It was, I have a photo of it. I can send you pretty cool. All right. Um, cool, cool. and, um, yeah, so I, I had that and, uh, and then, yeah, we met those guys and we, they were riding flat and, um, and then we kind of became acquainted with the guys at the basic bikes house. Um, and we would just knock on the door and ask for stickers and annoy the piss out of them. And, um, they were just like, oh, these fucking kids again, Jesus. Like they were, we were just these pack of kids. There was like my friends and I, maybe there was like six or seven of us. And, you know, we'd pretty much travel in a group and, but it'd be crazy. You'd pull up to the basic house and you'd be, they would just be loading their bikes in. And it was kind of just like, it was a trip, you know? I mean, everyone has their own story like this. So everyone knows what I'm talking about, you know? about mm -hmm. that feeling when you're that, that young, but you know, people have their comic book superheroes. These guys were comic book superheroes. They really were like when you turn the X games on and you see, you know, certain people and then all of a sudden they're just kind of like in your neighborhood and they're just loading their bikes into a car. You're like, Holy fuck. Like, that's crazy. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and you're just so, you just want to talk to them and you're just, well, I mean, most people would be afraid to talk to them. Um, and I think we obviously were very shy, but, uh, we did talk to them and it was just really, you just wanted to see what they were riding and what they were doing and the way they spoke and like the way they spoke about riding. It was just like, wow, like, fuck, like that's exactly how it should be, you know? And that's how I want to be, you know, as a little kid. Larger than life. And it really does feel like that, you know? And I mean, there's a lot of things like that I know and people have those their own experiences of all kinds and everything they do where they have people they look up to, but it really is a powerful thing. And, uh, I think a lot of us can say that, you know, even this many years later, like I'm, I'm in my late thirties now, I guess, and I'm 37 now, 38. And, uh, I was 13 and I'm still kind of like, like stoked, you know, <laughs> I'm still, I'm like, you know, and I, a lot of guys say that cause it's cool. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, it made really a good impression on you. Yeah. Oh sure. yeah. It changes you. It's like, I always say, it's like you see life in black and white and then it's like, you see color for the first time and 
think about that. You know, it's crazy. So yeah, so the basic house and those guys, I mean, you know, like only got to know them as well as one could at the age of 13, 14 years old, because they were in their twenties and they were drinking and partying and they were doing everything that they would and should have been doing at that time. But we were very young. So, you know, you get to know them and, um, I'm trying to think of where I should go. I need your help here to kind of like. Well, yeah, yeah, but well, I, okay. So, so that's great because one of my questions was going to be about your early influences, which is just described with the basic house and and those guys were, you know, were competing, were older. But like you said, those guys were uh, not only into flatland. Some of them were ramp riders and some like top top ramp riders. But yeah, you know, after racing, you sort of lean towards uh, flatland, even though you're also known for being a street rider but your your influence from those group of people that group of people was flatland yeah i'm trying to think of why that was i think obviously first and foremost that flatland resonated with me for some reason more than a little bit more than all the other disciplines did but at the same time it all did you know like it all it all was incredible but i felt like because at that time meeting like ferris and and um, jason brown And one thing too, is that from my perspective, those crowds were a little separate. Like there was the basic bikes guys and then Jason Brown, Steph Royer, Steve Fong, like everyone knew each other and everyone was cool, but it did seem like there was a little bit of a separate group going on. But regardless, like as kids, you know, like I, yeah, it could have been sponsored, sponsored difference basically because Andrew Andrew was on basic and then Jason was on GT. Kind of thing uh yeah exactly right so there was a bit of a divide some crossover but i remember as a kid like just kind of interacting with both even though i saw you know and even as jamie even jamie for example like jamie was in their friends he was part of that crew and everything but even still like he probably hung out more with the basic bikes guys than he hung out with jason brown and those guys so seemed like that from what i remember um but yeah anyway so yeah i definitely flyland definitely resonated more but, you know, it's like when I would think about riding, it always was maybe all of it that I thought about. You know, like when you would daydream about bike riding and things like that, I would daydream about park and I would daydream about dirt jumping just as much as I would daydream about flatland, you know. Um, I think that, like, yeah, I ended up doing that flatland because it it was cool and it was what I was into. But, you know, like one thing that was so cool about all those guys is they all rode everything. Correct. I think they all did. Like, I think for the most part, you know, like we, we would be at, uh, there was the, the famous parking lot that was in Port Coquitlam, which is where uh, the town where I grew up. Um, there's a big mall parking lot where everyone, you know, international people will probably know it from all the Canadians, a videos and things yep. like that. All the footage of Corey Stratichuk and Jason, it's that big open parking lot. You know, it, you know, if you know it, you know it. Um, that was it. That was just like an overflow parking lot at that mall um, for the Christmas months if I or the Christmas weeks, if I remember correctly. But it was so it was just always empty. So that was where everyone rode before long before me. And then we rode even for, for a little while after. And I think it was just in the early 2000s that it had been plowed or developed for some high rises and stuff. But what was so crazy about that parking lot or about that riding spot? or even just kind of like Port Coquitlam in general, is that everyone, you'd be somewhere riding and all of a sudden everyone would just show up. So you'd have, you know, like riding, you know, you show up and then there'd be like Jason and Andrew sometimes and then Steph Royer and then Steve Fong and then 
Paul Buchanan, Steve Roy, Dave Asato, Jay Miron. They would, and the list goes on and on and on. And like even people from out of town would come with them. And then it would just be this incredible group of, of riders, like some of the most well-known, you know, influential people like at the time and even now still um, would be there riding. And you'd see Paul Buchanan doing funky chickens on his terrible one. And you'd see <laughs> Jay ripping. I mean, everyone knows that Jay rides flat, but like, I mean, Dave and Jay, Davis Otto and Jay, they would be doing the stuff that got like, like that Andrew was working on. They would be doing that on their 40 pound Schwins, you know, like, and it'd be like, holy shit, like you guys are just doing that stuff. Like that's the level of well-rounded skill that all these guys had. So anywhere you went in my neighborhood, you would, it would be a 50, 50 chance. You were going to just bump into someone, some legend, you know, and at the time, and at the time they were not, they were just kind of like up and coming, but they were still well-known and, and then they went on to become legends. But I mean, yeah, you'd go, you know, dumpster ride, like a uh, wall riding with like Paul Buchanan and stuff like that. Like that's pretty rare. Like a lot of guys, not a lot of guys can say they did that, you know, and, but it just made my neighborhood growing up pretty um, active in terms of like bikes. And it had such a, such a diverse group of really well-known riders. So it was really, really cool. It was contagious. I mean, how do you, there was no way once you were in it and once you were like kind of sucked into it, there was no putting it down, you know? And, um, and it was just so inspiring. It was just like there was just there was no well, way to yeah. put it down and no way to stop it. You know, you still uh, you still are it twenty five years later, so you must have been. Yeah, yeah, it stayed with me. But um, what was sorry? Going back, your original question was Flatland. Was that like why? Yeah, Flatland life? because because you ride yeah. a little bit of streets and because you were around guys that rode uh, you know ramps and uh, skate parks and also Vancouver has a bunch of uh, concrete skate parks even at that time. Uh, and and some dirt jumps and some you know some racetracks so it was easy to ride everything and especially being around a group that rides different type of that have different type of riding yeah there was a, there's always been a lot of skate parks there was a time in Vancouver where there weren't if I remember correctly as many skate parks as there are now um, my earlier years as a, a wee lad were spent less so at skate parks and more riding street more riding like like flatland mixed with street and we would we would ride flat and then we would ride street and and it was kind of just that's all we would do it would just be a mix it would all be part of the same thing like it was just always part of the same thing and i know i've always said that like in my like publicly i've always kind of on some level kind of talked about that but mm -hmm. i really do be like believe me when i tell you like that was like the only way i saw it was that it would be like you know and and it was really cool to see guys like Jason Brown who were like that. He was a lot like that. Like he was one of the first that I saw where we would be riding flat. And then um, like around my neighborhood, there was this place, we would call it the old Dutch. That was the name of it. It was called, we're going to go ride old Dutch. We called it old Dutch because there was a big factory there for old Dutch potato chips. Do you know, does old Dutch yeah, yeah. potato chips still around? Yeah. Um, so. so the old Dutch, we call it ride, go, go ride old Dutch. And so all these fat, it was like this big uh, industrial complex that was endless in terms of curbs and islands and loading banks. And you'd try to jump the banks and you do, and everyone rode that place. Like even all the other pros I mentioned, they would come pop in once in a while and ride. And um, they would always, the security would always chase us and stuff like that. But I remember when 
we went there with Jason one time. He said, meet me at Old Dutch. And we were like, okay, cool. So we met him there. There was like six or seven of us little kids and just him. And uh, he would he was just absolutely fucking destroying the bank and like doing crazy nose wheelie, like nose pick, ice pick, like grinding everything. And it was like, whoa, on his. And at that time he was riding a blue standard shorty. So if that gives you some, I, that was before GT, before all that stuff. And there's been photos I've seen that have popped up online of him riding like his two hip when he rode for two hip mm-hmm. and like his, his, it was, sorry, it wasn't a standard shorty. It was a basic. <laughs> and then there's that whole story, which we won't get into, but uh, yeah, like all that old stuff. And that was cool because it was just that frame that in my mind that it was like, it was just like totally natural to just ride anything that was in front of you. And that was sort of always cool. And so then that's where for me, it was always important just to have a bike that I could ride for everything. Like it didn't make any sense to have a bike where I'm like, Oh, just for me personally, like I I knew some guys that had two bikes or some guys would ride a bike that was maybe more fitted for flatland, but then ride park shit on it. But I kind of like the idea of like having some the hybrid thing. So that's kind of what always I've been an advocate of. I struggled yeah. with that for a long time, you know, going back. Yeah, bike, I remember we bikes. talked about that. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. So it's funny also that, you know, you mentioned like riding everything or riding, having the street influence, because for a while, I, I guess in the early 2000, like Flatland went really on its own, even in terms of events, it started and then the, the bikes were changing drastically. And then thanks to a few people, you and Matthias and, and other guys trying to go back to more traditional frame double triangle and trying to do two things with one being a family and and being inclusive so i think that's a good thing so going back to you though uh and you know you're growing up so at the time you you're in high school you're riding a lot every day how many hours back then yeah yeah i mean a fair bit i think um yeah i mean like there were some days where i would ride three four hours things like that it was yeah there were some hefty long days for sure it was not like this obsessive thing it was just or or not this like thing where i was trying to get super dialed and perfect this and whatever i didn't really think like that i just to be honest like i i feel like people are going to laugh at me for saying this but i feel like it was kind of for me sort of creatively driven like i always had all these ideas for tricks and i know just like everybody does and all i mean all that drove me was just the creative endeavor to just be able to learn that you know like and you have to And if that required riding for eight hours in one day, well, then that's what it took. And I would have no problem doing that. Um, I don't remember having any kind of like set schedule until maybe, maybe like, yeah, like high school, like as soon as like toward the end of high school, it was sort of like at, at school until whatever time it was, two forty-five, three o'clock. And then I would be home and try to be riding by like four and then ride until dark. And that, and when dark was depended on the season. So you'd ride for two hours in the winter, May or no, sorry, two hours like in the every spring, fall, and then you'd ride for longer, you know, or in less summer. in the winter or summer, you know. And that was kind of like the rule kind of the average kind of broke down to two to three hours a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, which I think a lot of people would say the same thing now. So do you was it was it hard for you to learn tricks or was it a like difficult process or were you coming easily? Were you like copying thing? I mean, I, I, at the beginning, everybody does, right? You're like, oh, I like, yeah. that. I like, I like how the other guy rides, and I'm gonna try his trick. But then, before you develop your own, your own style, yeah. So like, er, I think early on, 
very much so. I mean, yeah, you would totally just copy what you saw. You you copy not only what you saw, but the way you saw it or the way people did it. Um, you you paint your bike the same color as your favorite riders. You'd you'd be so you'd be such a sponge. You know, you'd be so heavily influenced by it all. But that's that's important because you're just you know like you're influenced by good people and good role models, and you just sort of work it, and then eventually it all kind of becomes this big swamp water and all of a sudden you're just you you know like you're just your own thing and and i think you land on something yourself i mean a lot of people don't but i think if you can you just sort of get comfortable and you start having like your own ideas and you just make sure you follow those you know really mm -hmm. follow those ideas and really pursue them and you know don't be different for the sake of being different just always be yourself kind of thing and then that's kind of it and i think that yeah, like uh, I was always lucky because I was always surrounded by people who would always just say, you know, oh, you do it that way. That's cool. Do that. You know um, that. Oh, yeah, that's a little weird, maybe fine. But just make sure you just keep doing that, you know, and then it'll evolve. And uh, so, you know, it's all about just kind of celebrating everyone, how different everyone is and and uh, and doing that. But um, that's sort of yeah, a common theme for that time, I think, where everybody had their own style and even bike setup were different and everybody rode like two brakes and a gyro and it's i mean we'll go into that later i think but uh you look at because you're a judge do do you feel that you know people are a little bit the same nowadays like everybody looks a little bit of the same and there's less creativity or is it because everything's been invented a lot of has been invented i'm trying to think yeah that's a really good question very complicated i mean i think in a lot of ways there's a there is a little bit of a yeah template now in terms of the tricks that people do i mean some people would say duh you know of course you know but um but i don't know i mean in in like flatland it feels like there's always like a lot of different characters you know like people are doing a lot of the same spinning stuff same switches things like that but but i feel like uh when you understand the nuance of everyone i do feel like everyone is very much kind of their own thing um, which I think is always really cool and still really yeah. cool. It is. Let's park yeah. that for later when we talk about sure, your sure. role as a judge. But I want to come for back sure. to, you know, your writing and your, you know, you talk about those early influences. And obviously, mid to late 90s, is there's a lot of scuffing going on, a lot of pinky squeak type, a lot of bar flips. Your current setup, if I'm not mistaken, is still right. Classic frame, probably based or still pro model from McNeil. And you have front brake. So I guess when you started, you had two brakes like everyone else and a gyro and everything. You're mostly known for a front wheel rider, but were you doing back wheel stuff as well? Yeah. So yeah, I am still riding double triangle, two piece bars. In fact, the bigger my bike has been getting, I mean, I've been riding a 21 top tube and then 10 inch bars for quite some time now, but I found that the bigger my bike got, the happier I got, okay, that's <laughs> which good. is kind of funny. <laughs> and it even did naturally change your riding a little bit. You whip a 19 and a half frame around a little different than you whip a 21. And, uh, and I'm okay with that. And I've always been okay with how that would change my riding. And I just went with it. And that always felt good. Out of curiosity, how tall are you? Uh, I think I'm 5'12", 5'11", something yeah, so like almost 6. I yeah. Like a, yeah, the 21 doesn't really, it's fine. Yeah, it feels yeah. totally good. Um, so sorry, the other part of your question. Yeah, like... Um, back wheel riding. Road, I had two brakes back wheel riding. Back wheel. Yeah. yeah, so I, I started, I, I definitely had a back brake few times i always hated it because i felt like i love doing certain things but i but i felt like 
back brakes got a little clunky to me for a while. I didn't like all the hardware. I wanted less and less things on my bike. And which is funny because a lot of guys ride, you know, everybody rides no brakes. I still have a front brake. So I get that, uh, the irony of that, but, uh, yeah, I had a back brake and then I, I took my back brake off way early on, you know, like I, I don't even remember when I took it off. I want to say way into the early two thousands, maybe even a little before that I took it off for good, I think. Um, and then, yeah, as far as like back wheel stuff, like I've always had a deep love and respect for back wheel stuff. I've played with it, done a lot of stuff. I mean, there's some video stuff of me doing all kinds of stuff. I can do more than you might think like on a back wheel. Oh, I, I always, I've, well, I mean, I've done, you know, like I, cause I think a lot of people have never seen me even touch the back wheel too much at all, correct. really, which is totally yeah. fair to say. Um, but I have put in like a fair bit of work on the back wheel. I just, something about the back wheel I found for me, I don't know. I just didn't, all my ideas just kind of came to the front wheel and I just sort of got consumed by that and naturally, and that's all I can really say about it. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think like, you know, there's some amazing examples uh, there's countless examples of what dudes are doing on the back wheel now. Uh, I mean, the back wheel has always been incredible, like the kind of things you can do. So deep respect. Um, All right. So you, you're growing up, you're finding out your style, or not yet maybe, and then you're removing your, your back brake, your rear brake. Um, are you starting to go to some events beyond Vancouver, some jams or some contests yet? Are you traveling a little bit? Yeah. So um, I was very close. I mean, a lot of people may remember uh, Shane Neville. Uh, who did Ronan way back in yep. the day. And he used to do Flatland shout out Manifesto, to Shane. which yep. shout out to Shane. But uh, yeah, Shane and Flatland Manifesto. So Shane and I were very, very, very close, very good friends. And um, and uh, yeah, I mean, Shane, Shane was just such a huge influence on me. He was such a great, he was like family, you know, and he was always so supportive and, and um, he was just one of my best friends. And we spent so much time together. And, um, so I think, um, I guess there was Shane and then there was also Jamie who were kind of like, if I can remember correctly, they were two of the first to kind of bring me outside of Vancouver in terms of contest. So actually the first one was actually Jamie, uh, which there was a big X trials, uh, BS contest in Beaverton, Oregon, if I remember correctly, which, wow, I can't believe I even remember where that was. Beaverton. So near, what is that near Portland? Yeah. I have um, no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not six or something hours from Vancouver, you know, a little ways from you, but uh, yeah, it was a big BS contest, which was cool. And they had amateur. So, um, and that was like in 99, I believe it was. So, you know, years and years of just riding as like a local kid in Vancouver. And uh, I was riding like a dyno. Uh, which I think had Redline stickers on it at the time because Jason Brown was later riding for Redline and he would just give me whatever. And uh, so I remember Jamie was going to go and everybody was going to go. And, uh, and, I, and I told my parents, I'm like, there's this big contest. I'm going to go. I'm going to enter my first contest. And um, then uh, he, my parents were like, that seems like a really cool thing because they knew what the X Games was and they knew all that. And obviously that doesn't relate to you as an amateur. Um, but the fact that there was an amateur class there was really cool. And um, so my mom, I remember my mom saying, she's like, well, you know, we've heard a lot about Jamie. Um, we, we should, you know, I was 14 or 15 years old. She's like, well, we should meet him. You know, like we should talk to him if you guys are going to road trip, you know, six or seven hours away. So I remember, <laughs> I remember fucking Jamie had to like come to my parents' house that he had to like, 
it was great. I mean, my parents are really cool, but he had to like, we had, I think we had dinner. We had to sit, they had like, they didn't interview him. There was nothing like that, but it was just kind of hang out and get to know Jamie, you know, and, uh, and there's Jamie <laughs> and uh, Jamie was probably 25, 26 at the time. And, um, and then here he is like, it's kind of amazing, funny that like Jamie would sort of do that for some punk kid that he didn't even know that well, me, you know? Um, but he came and yeah, he, like my parents were like, well, obviously, I mean, Jamie's so great. Like my parents were like, well, obviously we're going to let you go. I mean, it's, it's great. It's great. It's awesome. So um, yeah, so that was Port Portland. That was my first contest. And that was pretty nerve wracking to be at a BS contest in amateur um, amongst, I mean, there's all kinds of people. Everyone was, all the pros were there too. So it was intense. And um, how do you do? Yeah. So I, oh, I'm trying to remember. I think I, I qualified. I remember that. And I think I got in the top, somewhere in the top 10. I might have gotten like sixth or seventh or something like that, which was not bad. And I, I mean, there was, it was a pretty full class too, I think, at the time as well. I think there was a, a fair number. Um, do you remember some, some of the guys that were you were competing against? Oh, yeah. Some of the, Andy Cooper. I remember, okay. I think he won. I think he won the contest. If anyone remembers Andy Cooper, he's an American rider um there was a couple of japanese riders um yeah i'm sorry i can't I, some of the names of some of the people i can't remember but it was these were people that are still riding today and you know uh, it was really cool and then i think um so i mean there's obviously a lot i could say about that contest but i mean honestly i think the next one was um another it was a cfb which is another one of the divisions of like the bs contest And that was in California. And that was one that I went with Shane. And Shane brought me out for that. That was cool. I feel like silly getting into this much detail. I don't even know if I've ever talked to anybody about this stuff. So this is That's really the whole funny. point of the podcast. Yeah, no, no, yeah it's yeah, great. Yeah, that's what people right want to hear. That's what I people like want to hear. Nobody, I have this feeling sometimes like, why would anybody care what I, why would people want to hear these stories from me? It's, um, but um, anyway, so there's the BS contest. That was my first one. And then there was actually one after that, which was, it wasn't the California one. It was one in Edmonton, Alberta. And there used to be this big brand in uh, Canada called 1664, which you may have heard of. A lot of people have heard of. of. Um, it was actually where I first met Corey Fester. Uh, it was called Street Justice. And I remember there was a flatland contest there. And that was really cool. That was a solid flatland contest. And I remember riding with Corey at that one. That was a lot of fun. And um, Yeah, that was great. So those are kind of my first examples of actually being out in the public eye and and being like riding in front of crowds and things like that. I mean, I had done shows, but contests are always different. And that was also with Jamie and Darcy from McNeil. Um, so I've known those guys forever. But yeah, just road tripping with them out there was fun as a little 15, 16 year old kid. And it's kind of how it starts, you know, so. It is. I remember uh, in the previous podcast with Jamie, you actually said that you were hanging out in the in the warehouse, and then uh, you were around 15 years old, and he he was he was having you and your buddies like uh, put bolts onto stems, you know, to make you do something for, in exchange for stuff. And uh, yeah, shit, man. Yeah, totally. My friends and I, yeah, we would do that. Like we would. I, I think if I remember correctly, I think Jamie even remembered my friend. Brent's name which is a total trip because it's so long ago that he and the fact that he would even meet that kid like one time two times and then remember his name this many years later is wild but anyway um yeah we would we would do that we would be totally just like around the warehouse and 
I mean, it, it kind of was like that for a long time, you know, like it was started out as that doing a little bit of like work, helping out with McNeil, things like that. I, I think I did my work experience uh, for high school at McNeil packing orders. And actually it wasn't even McNeil at the time it was up North and or yep. 10 pack. Um, so I would be packing orders and stuff in the front with Darcy and, and those guys. And, you know, everyone would just be coming through like Asado and whoever, I mean, you name it, and people would come rolling into town and rolling through, which was cool. Um, so I did that, but then, uh, but yeah, I would ride in the warehouse a lot. I would ride at 10 pack. They had the vert ramp, the Schwinn vert ramp, and then they had the mini ramp in there. And then they got rid of the vert ramp, if I remember correctly. And then that was kind of just an open area. And so Ferris would ride there like in, in winter and in the summer when it was too hot, Jamie would too. And Jamie would always be so kind and inclusive to invite me to come ride with him like on rainy days and stuff. Because one thing we know about Vancouver is it's always yeah. fucking raining. Um, I was going to ask so, you about that. Like if you had a uh, rain, rain uh, spot. Uh, I mean, I had many rain spots. I think that was like my most main memorable one. Ten Pack and McNeil were honestly like a three and a half minute ride from my parents' house, like through the woods, down a road, and then you were at McNeil. Like that's how close that was. It was just a total trip. And that, but that was their first warehouse. So when it all first started, you know, but uh, yeah, so I would go there and it just made it easy. Like I literally could hold an umbrella. I would like a beach umbrella. I would carry my bike that was covered in like a garbage bag or, or maybe not. And I would just carry my bike umbrella and I would walk from my parents' house through the woods down to the warehouse. And then everyone would be there riding in, in the flatlands, but it was great. And uh, so it made it really good. And, um, and then they built it into like a full skate park after they got rid of the mini ramp. So there was like the stock area in the warehouse. And then there was a full skate park that you probably saw in the 10 pack videos, but I would mm -hmm. ride. And then it would just be pretty much me riding in between the ramps. There was like some pretty open spaces. And I learned like a lot of stuff, like a lot of stuff that I ended up doing in the contest runs and stuff I learned in that warehouse, which was just great because I would just go to school and then I would come home from school and I would just go to go to 10 pack and ride the warehouse. And Jamie was always so nice. And he was just always so supportive and so like cool about me being there, even though I was probably annoying being there all the time riding. And I was probably annoying because the employees would be walking through packing orders and they'd always want to talk to me and ride and hang out and like Ryan mountain and those guys. And we would goof around a little too much. So definitely a bit of a pain in the ass, like having these kids goofing off all the time, but they were always very cool. And Jay was always great. And um, that was a lot of fun. And I would come ride the park sometimes at night with Jason Enns and Sato and those guys. And we actually like ride the ramps and stuff. So um, that was a lot of fun too. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of great stuff from that warehouse. Cool. And then like one thing led to another and you got some support from them and from WTP. Uh, we, the people. Yeah. Um, like I think cause Jamie talked a little bit about it. Um, yeah. Like 10 pack had their, distribution riders if i remember correctly and um so there was a few guys who would be sponsored through distribution and i was one of them so they they um put me on we the people um i feel like i have some memory of potentially riding for another company instead because they carried so many brands obviously and i remember i think i'm because i remember andrew had left Schwinn and I remember then he was on volume I think yeah. for a little a brief period yeah, and then right. I remember 
potentially I was going to be part of like, or riding a volume frame. I cause Andrew was doing like a, I think he had like a part street flatland frame or whatever at the time. And that was just coming out and I was going to ride that. But then I ended up on we, the people. Cause I think I can't remember the conversation. Jamie probably would remember it better than I would, but I think they said that might be a better fit. And so then, yeah, so I just became a, a sponsored 10 pack rider and then they had Primo. And so I was on Primo. And then I think there was a couple of uh, one or two other things maybe, but I think those were the main ones if I remember correctly. And um, so, yeah, so I rode for them and then we, yeah, so that was kind of it. I mean, they had a lot of guys on a lot of stuff and then a lot of those guys, like they sort of just did that with 10 pack and then they sort of just fizzled out or whatever. Um, but then, yeah, I was like, I guess one of the lucky ones I, I like, we, we got asked to go to the world's, in Germany the one year. And then, uh, yeah, I got to know the, we, the people guys and Harry and Klaus who are still, still love those guys still talk to Klaus uh, a fair bit. And Harry's pretty elusive. He's very mysterious. Uh, mm. and he still owns we, the people, I believe. I know that Frank talks to Harry. Um, but, uh, I love those guys with all my heart, Harry and Klaus best dudes. Um, they were also a big part of what sort of thrusted me into design because Klaus is a designer and Harry has a product design background. So they were just such an influence on me. But anyway, meeting them at the Worlds uh, was great. And um, they, yeah, if I remember correctly, they just kind of said, we love what you're doing. Because I was a bit, because I, I think one of the things that was unique at the time was that they only had a certain flatland frame. I think they had, it's coming back to me now. They had a frame called the Pony. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we And then pony. they had an al right. aluminum version of that, the aluminum pony, which I don't know if that was just had some other name, but whatever, the aluminum pony. And I think that that was the only flatland frames they had at that time, if I remember. Um, but I wanted a longer bike. And I know that they had this other bike called a Four Seasons. And this stands out to me, which was sort of a standard double triangle. I mean, I rode a pony for sure. And I love that bike when I had it. The only ponies I had, or only pony I had was Jamie's, because Jamie rode for We The People, and he gave me his hand-me-down frames. Another great Jamie story. The guy's a saint. Uh, he was so supportive <laughs> to me. And um, so he gave me that. But then um, but yeah, then I rode the Four Seasons when I got on We The People through 10-pack. So um, I think that Harry and Klaus, and I, I don't want to bullshit this story, because this is how I remember it. I, I remember that they found that weird as a as being a flatlander riding a four seasons because i think a four seasons was a trails frame and um so they were like they were like that's really cool that you're riding a four seasons like and they knew that i rode park and and they liked my style and stuff so they said well we really should do some stuff for you or some stuff with you so then they let me design my own so it was then became not just me sort of riding the four seasons which was something that was like the closest to what i wanted to be riding but not exactly they said well let's make you exactly what you want to ride and um, and that was the div frame that um you might remember so that was cool it was just double triangle longer frame at the time it had some technology in it that was a little bit more advanced i think than some of the flatland frames around out of the time because it's fucking we the people man like we the people is still in my opinion one of if not the most impressive bike brands in the industry bar none like i mean you've seen their bikes now like even now that is some crazy stuff they have the most beautifully designed thoughtful bikes and thoughtful products 
then and now. Um, most to me, aesthetically, some of the most impressive things I've ever seen in terms of like BMX products. Um, really, really pretty. And, you know, that comes from the mind of those guys. And, and I'm not surprised. Amazing stuff. So, yeah. So you were get when you were, you were getting sponsored by them, were you, uh, you, were you getting just product or are you getting some, some financial support? So with, with, uh, 10 pack, it was just product. And then that was, I guess, because they had distribution teams in almost every country, not, well, not every country, but a lot of countries. And then when you go to that tier, then you become part of kind of like the royalty or paid team. So that was great. That was like really, really cool. So that's when I think you move. Yeah, I moved from the distribution thing to like on the, the main international team, like the A team for We The People. So that was when and, they start doing more. Yeah. And then where, at the time, were you still a student or were you, what, what, what where are you in life at that point? Were you in, in university yeah. or? Yeah. So uh, this, I remember. So um, that all happened within the first month of graduating high school. So I graduated high school. I think I was home, if I remember correctly, for like a couple of weeks, maybe. And then it was off to Germany. And then that was it. It was just the way we went. So it was kind of like high school, graduation ceremony, pack my shit, go to Germany. And then that was it. So pretty cool. Amazing timing, which I mean, that trip in Germany, that was the world's. I mean, I I did pretty shitty at the Worlds, I think, because I was just young. I mean, I was probably 17, 18, barely rode in any contests at that point. Uh, maybe a maybe Toronto, I qualified and I just turned pro, like I think in March 20 or 2002 or something like that. And then that was in like March. And then the I graduate high school and then the Worlds in Germany was like that July or June. So it was just a little bit after. So I was a fresh new pro. Um, And um, I remember I, Jamie went with me to the Worlds and then we both rode the contest. And then I think he went home and because uh, obviously he was running 10-pack, uh, running the whole thing and um, with everybody. And then I stuck around because we the people did like a street tour. And I think at that time, their main guys were Asado and Josh Hino, if anyone remembers Josh Hino, the street rider. Yeah. And a bunch of other guys and uh and i just they asked me to go on the tour and i was so then so then i just went on the street tour so that made so much sense for me as a being the only flatlander but just being a flatlander going on these street tours was really cool because i mean again it just went hand in hand with how i always rode and it was just really fun to see how those guys what they did and um and obviously it was nice to have asado because asado and i are like family and it was nice to have him on the on the trip as well and it was just really comfortable Um, to have your friends there but um, yeah it was great to be with all those other guys and it was like a full team tour so that was pretty neat and um, yeah a lot, a lot of fun so that was that was great and I mean it, I think that just became a little bit of a trend throughout the rest of my my pro career was going as on street tours as a as the only flatlander <laughs> which uh, you know that's why you know I've have such close friendships with certain other riders in flatland right now because they do the same thing they're flatlanders on street tours i mean yeah pretty cool <clears throat> yeah that was just like a huge thing and um that obviously became a little harder later on because you get so hurt on those tours man i, I think that only a few will understand but like you're you're going on these trips and you crash and like your wrists are taped up by the end of it and you're and you're filming you got to get clips and you got to do this thing and it became 
it wasn't like that in the beginning. It was kind of just you ride and then, oh, somebody snaps some pictures. And this was pre-Instagram, right? So there wasn't as much like heavy clipping going on and footage and shit like that. But um, it became more and more and more like that. And it just became so intense. And You felt pressure to deliver for the sponsor? That was part of your agreement? <laughs> yeah, I mean, with We The People, no. With We The People, it was always very laid back. It was almost too laid back, to be honest. In, in the sense that they they didn't like they wanted stuff but i mean that was still like when i was on we the people going into the early 2000s i think i wrote it for we the people up until maybe 2006 2007 something like that and i would say from when i first got on the main team up until that point that i left i think i uh yeah, I never really felt too much pressure. I mean, I think they were generally pretty happy because I was going to contests and I, I think I was for the most part qualifying for finals and sometimes getting even in the top three at some stuff. And I, I mean, contests were never really like, when I really cared about contests, I did pretty well. And then other times I wasn't too worried about it. I, I don't think I was like that competitive from a contest perspective. Um, but definitely there was a little bit of pressure in terms of just the early ideas of content, you know, like it was like, okay, so we have the We The People website, send us bike checks, send us this, go do that, shoot photos, do this. So it was it was definitely like not as intense as it is now. They did need it, but they didn't like grill you or like say mm. this is what we need, you know? It did become more like that. Like with We The People, uh, it was fine. And then with McNeil, it became a little bit more, you know, trips, trips and clips man like it was it was kind of just a lot of that and uh which was cool you know i mean it, it does kind of push you i mean uh you know like there's a lot of times when you don't think you can do something and then you're like well we got to get this clip and then you it's amazing what you can do when it's kind of life or death yeah 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 i remember <laughs> there, I, I remember a particular edit with ali uh alistair whitton uh, uh i think in the, yeah in the new york area there you guys were on a, on a trip there back east and then there was uh, some video and there were two you you had two competing edits like ali was making one and somebody <laughs> else was making i think that's how it went oh yeah yeah that was in uh that was in greenville that was in g vegas in greenville north carolina yeah. that was like because everyone knew greenville at that time to be pro what do they call it pro pro town proton, proton yeah, usa proton. or whatever yeah. yeah so yeah i remember um i mean that trip that was actually a really unique trip because alistair and his wife Lindsay, uh they had bought a house in greenville they had this beautiful house it was like a couple acres of property and uh, alistair wanted some artwork for his house and so um the creative director main designer at mcneil at the time was harrison voice yeah um, shout harrison, out to harrison actually shout out to harrison i mean harrison actually doesn't live too far away from me here right now in new york he's he's here um but uh, at the time yeah harrison lived in vancouver as well and um so harrison and i had done they did an mtv cribs on jay's house on Jay's condo in Vancouver, which was in Yale town, which you know where that is. And yep. uh, Jay called me and said, Cribs is doing a thing on my condo. I need you and Harrison to do some artwork for my house. So I said, okay. So then Harrison and I had to make these paintings and these things. You'll, you can see them. It's, it's probably still on YouTube. There's, you can see this stuff we did. Was, Fuck, this was so long ago. I don't think I've ever even talked about this until now, but uh, <laughs> um we did that stuff. And then Alistair was like, wow, that's cool. I want that in my house too. 
So then Jay said, now you guys are going to go to Greenville and you're going to go do the same thing, but just do it for Alistair's house. And we're like, that's awesome. Like, that's super fun. I mean, well, I may, I make it sound so military. It wasn't that military. It was just like, it was actually really, really fucking cool. Um, and we were like, yeah, that, that's awesome. And he's like, and then you guys should go and take Andrew McMullen, who's actually also lives in New York as well. He was the video. He was one of the videographer, video guys or photographers for McNeil at the time. He came with us on a lot of trips. Shout out to Andrew McMullen. Great guy. Um, Andrew uh, came with us as well. And, um, and then there was one other rider who I can't even remember his name, but he rode for McNeil at the time, but whatever. And um, so we went and we just stayed at Alistair's house and it was just chaos. It was like Alistair still to this day. If you w- look at Alistair's Instagram, you can see him, you know, he's, he's just like, I don't even know what you'd call. He's like Captain Blood, you know, like he's like, he fucking kicks your door down at like five in the morning. He's like, get up. He's like, coffee's ready. We're having breakfast and we're shipping out. And then you'd be like zip lining off the roof of his house, going dirt biking. Uh, I don't know, you know, and, and there's other, anyway, that video you're talking about, if I remember correctly, that was all the footage of that trip. And I just rode flat on his driveway because he had this yeah, huge that's driveway. Right. And it was filmed from above. It was filmed from the window above, if I recall. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they had all yeah, old old stuff. But it was it was a joke. It was funny. It was supposed to be kind of a joke. But um, but then so I believe, yeah, you're you're tripping me out. I, I haven't even thought about this stuff in years. But I do remember the dual edits thing, which was really funny because it was all this footage for like a week of in Greenville, which was super fun. And then I remember Andrew McMullen did his edit, and Alistair said, "Fuck you, I'm going to do an edit too." And yeah. then it was like an edit off and it was cool. I don't know which one I like better. I would say Andrew's was cool. Like it was really pro and like beautifully done. But then Alistair's was really funny because he cut in a lot of other stuff. So pretty funny. But so we just did a lot of that. There was a lot of like one-off really fun creative projects with those guys. And that was early in McNeil. Like I think that was like honestly within the first maybe six months that I was on McNeil. I think I was even still riding a We The People with yeah, totally. stickers on it. Talking about that, why, when and why did you switch? I remember I had just started going to university in like maybe 2005. And I mean, I was still actively competing, as I said, like traveling to contests for weekends, missing a lot more school than I probably should have, which I can tell you a bit more about that later. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, like with, with We The People, everything was always good and it was hard because they were like my family and I was very close. I mean, I, I had like pretty much my own room at the We The People house in Cologne in Germany because I, I would be there so frequently. I had my own key. I would fly to Europe from Vancouver and I would just be there. And actually, that's how Frank and I became, Frank Lucas and I became really close because I would be just coming for long stretches of time, months and months to Europe and in Germany. And I would kind of bounce between Cologne and Koblenz where Frank currently lives still. Yeah, like, I mean, they were like family, you know, it was just like there. So after a while, just from like a bike perspective, you know, Jay had a lot of plans for McNeil. There was a lot going on and we just started having a conversation like, you know, Jay wanted to do something with me, I think, because we were friends and, you know, I was always part of the 10 pack team and he always saw, I mean, Jay. He would always say shit to me like, he'd like, damn, he'd be like, you blew up more than I thought you would. You know, he would always say stuff like that to me, like just to fuck with me. 
Ori, Ori meant it. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, he, he was cool, but he wanted to do stuff with me, I think. Um, he didn't want to do stuff with Flatland is a really good way to put it. Um, because Jay was really in business. He's a businessman. Like he was wanting to make money. He wanted to have a successful brand. He, and he's not wrong to do that, you know, but there's not really any money in Flatland. Let's be honest. It's a lot of thing. A lot of guys forget. It's not because brands don't want to, don't have any respect for Flatland. In fact, I've only heard of people having the utmost golden respect for Flatland. It's just that it's so specific and it's so niche that it's just, there's not a lot of money from a business standpoint in it, you know, and that's something a lot of guys forget or a lot of guys don't know. I don't know, you know, um, I don't understand. Yeah. 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 So, so Jay, you know, kind of, that's the first foot he put forward was that he wanted to do stuff with me, but then his next foot forward was, yeah, there's not any money in Flatland. But so, you know, the, but then, yeah, with, with, with we, the people, everything was good. I mean, I, I have nothing that I would say negative about we, the people, they were always so great. And I still think they're great, but I think it was just time for me to move on. And, you know, with Europe, it was like, I think that like that had kind of run its course for me. It was like four or five years and, and stuff. And um, some of the stuff that I was talking about with Jay, it was just more in line with, how I was becoming and evolving as a writer, but then also having my design career kind of slightly tagged onto that as well. And that was a huge thing with McNeil was that Jay loved that part. And he would he was supporting me as much as a designer as he was a writer. And that was actually, I've never actually really explained it like that. That's like so clear. Uh, that's exactly what it was. And I never really thought about it like that. You're kind of blowing my mind having us talking <laughs> about this. Um, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But so yeah, so then that's when we that's what we did, and and it was kind of sad to to leave we the people, and I think they were a little bit surprised. But uh, then, you know, on to McNeil. So um, then we just started. Uh, that was like in 2000, maybe six or seven, as I said, and then then we just moved on to various creative projects like that Greenville thing and so on. And then it just kind of went from there. And there was a lot more, you know, like obviously I had full hands-on control, creative control with Harrison on like my Flatland products that we developed, like my meal frame. And then we did the seat yep. um, and things like that, which the seat we should talk about. Cause a lot of guys have asked me about that, why the seat ended up being what it was and why it was wrong. And you're talking about the small one with the handle, right? The shape. Yeah, it was not yeah, 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 correct. Yeah. So, uh, God, I almost, there's a lot of, a lot of brands that still run that design. Like, yeah, can still actually, buy them. even in Arkansas, like even a few, a month ago or a few weeks ago, I saw a few guys like Mickey Guidos is still running it. <laughs> I was like, you're still riding that seat. That's crazy. Um, you know, like a lot of people do cause they liked it. I know some people were, it was like a cult cult famous, you know, as far as the seat went, but then some guys were like, Ooh, it's kind of weird. The seat was fascinating here. You have pivotal which was new at the time and here's a massive piece of technology that still 100 percent dominates the entire industry and beyond we can be honest yeah. right That's so right. there was one shot to make a flatland version of this seat and of course that seat was specific to the time it was a time when people rode i mean people still do but people rode smaller stubbier seats there was some thought and concern about uh, some preciousness about how the back grabbed you know kind of like uh reminiscent of um do you remember the odyssey 99er yep yeah. yeah 
that was one of the few seats that I can, there's a KHE one, if I remember correctly. And I just know this because I went through this, you know, that grab joystick sort of thing on the back, something for Flatlanders to, to like. So we had one shot at making the pivotal mold to do a version of that. So there was a first pivotal seat, which was the first one that everybody rode, even the park dudes. And that's what the mold that we based it off of, because it was kind of a stubbier seat. Mm -hmm. You might even remember it. I think I was the first Flatlander, aside from Jamie, to ride a pivotal prototype. And uh, I took a Dremel tool and it had all this like plastic webbing on the inside, which is just what seats have. And I took a Dremel and I ground it all out. So it was just completely empty in the back and totally grabbable. I but still do that. I remember it being weird and unique for me to do that because I really just wanted that sort of freedom on the back, you know, and you get it. And so I did that and Darcy was like, well, holy shit. And Jay was like, holy shit, let's make a fucking flatland seat then. So then really my plan in my head was just to make a more solidified version of exactly what I had DIY'd. And then just maybe like add some finger grooves or something that says like, this is meant for flatland. So basically it was like a meeting with the guys and he, we had the prototype seat and it was on the fucking table, literally. And uh, Darcy had some clay and he had the seat and he said, show me what you want. And so I just kind of mashed it in there and said, okay, it needs to be what the original one was, but then we're going to make this like finger groove shit. And because of the, the clay, it became really chunky on the back. And I remember very specifically telling, like, I know that I'm having to add clay to it right now. So therefore it is adding to the base of the seat and making it bigger than it probably should be. But we need it to stay slim, low profile, every exactly what everyone would have wanted. And that's it. But, but trust me, like, if this is going to enter the market, it's got to be as low profile to the pivotal thing as we possibly can get it. But then it was, it, it went into production. And then it came back and I said, shit, <laughs> this is like way too big because you remember it being a beefcake, right? And so basically I said, well, you know, like obviously like the groove was right. Everything was right, but it's too thick. We need to go back to what the original Pivotal C was. And they said, no, that's it. Like you kind of like live with it and you're like, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it can be something that could end up becoming kind of cult cool. I don't know. But Every time I'd fucking look at my bike, I'd be like, fucking look at that thing. It's huge. It looks like, I mean, maybe it'd be cool now with like all like the, you know, Balenciaga shoes and things like that and all the stuff that's so thick, uh, you know, I mean, cross trainers and shit. But other companies still use, I think I had one deep when it was still deep before autumn. Yeah. Uh, I know yep. Deco had one too. And a few other brands had it. Everybody. Uh, yeah. So. Everybody. Yeah. It was in the DNA. It was in there at that point. And I had people coming up to me. Anyway, so then it's like in the, it was one of the weirdest things like back then because it was a huge responsibility and it was a huge opportunity to, because Flatland's so fucking small. And then when it has a shot, an insider shot like that at a product that was and still is the dominating technology, you know, we had a huge thing. But I mean, now it's cool because that concept is faded out. Like, honestly, like, yeah, yeah, you, you said you ride a Flatland seat. I mean, no, I do not. I ride a regular seat cross thing, web thing is annoying, yeah, so I dremel yeah. it down. Regardless of how people modify, I think it's much more common to be riding the full, what we, what would have been considered a street or park seat before. Because I know I do. I ride like the full length or whatever now, and it's great. So anyway, so I'm kind of glad that that fad went away. 
But dude, yeah, I don't know if you ever knew that. It was kind of a, it was a sore spot for me. All that shit aside, obviously, deeply thankful to be, even the seat that did come out, I had full input on the designs of the seat. So we did multiple McNeil Pro models that I had done. And obviously forever, forever thankful to have been able to design those seats exactly how I want. Outside of that, all that stuff turned out to say flawlessly is an understatement. They were great. Um, And how they'd be released in tandem, I think, with my frame at the time. So there was sort Mm -hmm. of an aesthetic uh, marriage to the two, which was kind of a cool and fun thing. So, yeah, really cool for those who didn't know that. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I mean, just creatively with McNeil, it was really cool because it just really uh, it, so it, you, aligned, it aligned perfectly with me as a designer and biker. So. so you had to frame the seat. What else, What other products did you have? Uh, with McNeil, yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, shoot, I think that might have been it. If I remember correctly, I think that was it. I'm going to feel like a total dummy if there was more than that. But uh, I know with We The People, there was, I think I had handlebars, forks, which were the some of the earlier ideas of that mid mid steepness fork or, or whatever um but then with yeah with mcneil i think it was just the frame and the seat so how long what how long were you uh, like officially on mcneil you still write a mcneil frame yeah you, i know you wrote you wrote some of the later uh street frames after that yeah no i i, I rode for we the people i'm sorry for mcneil i rode for mcneil um from 2006 maybe 2007 until probably 2000 maybe 12 or 13. Um, but even then, but that was like the brand was changing a lot. And I know that Jamie and Darcy, like Jay, as Jamie had spoken about, Jay had left the company mm-hmm. um, and then they had changed the model of McNeil a fair bit. So it went from, yeah, like I think we had discontinued the Flatland products because they just, they were what we always knew they were. They were just not huge money makers because they were Flatland and, um i think that they weren't yeah they were just they were beautiful products like i think all that stuff i still stand behind those frame designs and stuff but um yeah I think jamie that, still rides yeah, it yeah jamie does still ride that frame from what i saw on instagram which is really cool he's riding like a one-off a white one or whatever but yeah but then the after jay left the whole model of mcneil changed they tried to go from less <laughs> i guess you could say like the kind of trick star riders like the like Alistair and like those guys, they were not part of McNeil anymore. It was more core street riders or like up and coming street riders. Like at the time, like Dylan Lloyd, who rides for We The People now, I believe mm-hmm. still. Correct. Um, Greg Flagg, um, Jamel and things like that. And uh, those guys are great. And Chris Silva, Canadian dudes. And um, so they focus more on those guys. And I think I stay, I was on the team still for a little while because I mean, like I was riding a lot of street stuff and they were still uh, giving me like, if I remember like one-offs of my frame of my flatland frame. So I would ride that for street, which was pretty cool. Um, and so it wasn't available at the time, but I was still just getting them and riding them. It was great. Yeah. And then eventually I transitioned to the other street frames that they had at the time, which were pr- much more common to like the modern street bike or street frame. In the last, and then that was like a you know 2014 onward or whatever it was. I still fit. I think I was still like a colorful piece of the team, you know, in terms of like being the guy on the trips where I would still be doing flatland stuff. It was tricky because that was a bit of a tough time because like for me, I mean, I think 
I can understand now, like what you see certain guys doing now, like flatlanders who are riding street or like you see how street riding is and flatland is, there's a bit of like, it's blurred together, like all of it. It's a beautiful time, beautiful time to be in the sport or to be, BMX is just so lovely right now in terms of like the creativity and like how there's no rules to anything and people are not categorizing things so much. It's just so much crossover now more than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And that was how I always hoped riding to be. I felt like toward my last bit of time in on McNeil, I, that hadn't really happened yet. I don't know if guys were riding coasters yet. Like I think, cause now it's the standard, right? right? It is and the, I don't yeah, think right. that street dudes were riding coasters in my last time on McNeil. So I was still looked at as my bike was still looked at as being a little weird. You know, I think that with the change of McNeil, I think that they were trying to move a little bit more with like to bring McNeil in line with the, the trends of the other companies at the time, wow. whatever those were. And again, riding a, you know, a coaster free coaster and things like that was not really part of that. And doing the types of stuff that I was doing, which I think wasn't fully realized and resolved at the time, the hybrid of doing some flatland stuff on the street in street was just kind of like guys were just starting to learn hang fives in park and, and street and like, you know, there wasn't much of that. So, you know, and I think even guys were just starting to do nose wheelies and things like that. Like that was starting to become the standard. And that was all the sort of earlier things that guys were doing that were moving towards flatland being brought into street, you know? And um, and then that sort of melded the two. Does that make sense? Yeah, because um, I think also it was a time in BMX where a lot of, a lot of other brands were coming up. And so the pie, is always the same size and if you have more brands it's just everybody's part is smaller right? so it's it's harder also and you know the, at the time when i think when jay left obviously i didn't run the brand i wasn't involved at all but and then you have all these small brands and people always want to get the latest and new stuff from this guy that you know started the brand in his garage and has this frame <laughs> welded right and, sure, and yeah. so it must have been hard also to maintain a status and and maintain operations with employees and distribution and all that that must have been difficult for them as well yeah yeah i mean i i mean i i wouldn't presume to know i mean i think there was a, a fair bit going on it was a huge transition i know that the, they were moving into a new building at some point around there as well and what the timeline was i can't quite remember but i do remember on my last bit in mcneil i do remember a bit of pressure from jamie and darcy being a little bit like they weren't trying to tell me how to ride there's nothing like that it was how I interpreted it. It was a little bit of like, I mean, I think honestly, I guess I can say they pretty much let me just do my thing. And that was really cool, but it did seem like some of the park ride, you know, park flat street flat kind of hybrid riding was not that well received. Maybe it was the way that I did it at the time. Maybe it was just some of the stuff that I was doing. Maybe I was tired of touring on street tours and stuff, or I was hurt and I was just kind of like not, but I do remember it just wasn't, quite what it needed to be at the time and then i remember that like on the mcneil team i was a bit of a wild card i guess but i was also moving into starting my own design studio and stuff so i was kind of going still and even still to this day like still always riding but just i wasn't as like invested i think in like being on these trips and stuff so i think that's mostly what it was and um so yeah so we just decided like 
I mean, I was kind of always going to be part of the McNeil family, obviously, and like kept getting bikes for years and years mm -hmm. and years. I was getting still riding McNeil and doing all that stuff up until they sold it. And um, yeah, that, that was that was cool. I mean, it was fine. It was just because I was just so involved in the in well, design. You, you must have been around 25 at the time, 25, 26, probably in 2013. Uh, 2014, yeah. If you say yeah, you're 37 maybe, maybe, to now, yeah. Maybe in my late 20s, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, so yeah. So you, you, it's a different time in your life, right? You're starting your own business. You, you, you're focusing on that, and then the street riders are more 18, 20 than 26, 28, <laughs> kind of, right? Oh, there's that too. Yeah. I mean, fair, yeah. That's that's totally fair. I mean, I actually I never really thought too much about that. I mean, I some of the other guys on the team, I mean, everyone was kind of varying ages. So it didn't really seem like my age was that much different from the other guys on the team. There were guys who were 18. There were guys who were 25, 26, 28, you know, it was a mix. Um, so it was very 50, 50. So I don't really know if the age thing was a thing at the end there, but, um, but I mean, bottom line was that Jamie and Darcy and I were, and still are, as I said, always really tight friends. And it wasn't anything. It was just a discussion. It was just, it wasn't anything yeah, yeah, negative. I, it was I, like, we know you guys are just, he's like, they were like, you, we know you're busy. You're designing. This is what we're doing. Why don't we just, you know, let's just reorganize things. And I'm like, that's cool. Because I mean, all it was just minus the trips, which was kind of a relief at that point for me to just be able to focus on the design aspect of things and just kind of ride when and how I wanted to, which was cool. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't mean like, oh, you're, you're too old, you cut off from the team, but I, like no, no, from, no. Your, your, from your point of view, like, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, 27, 28, you know, I, I, yeah. when I'm hurt, it takes longer to recuperate. I don't know if I want to get slammed on the ledge anymore, more, more kind of like that when it's like, and I want to focus on my business and I want to take it a bit easier. And, you know, maybe that played a role. Yeah, no, definitely. It definitely did. And, and they were always really lovely about that and, and very cool. And yeah, and I mean, also just even to take it a step further and then for us to kind of like reorganize that part, dissolve that part. And then, but then they still supported me as a rider for years. So that was cool. And so, yeah, like I said, I mean, I rode McNeil until the, until they sold it, you know, which was probably in like 2017, 2016, whatever. And then I've been riding Haro ever since. So Matthias, shout out uh he's been really cool about um just like you know through him and haro sending me bikes and stuff so it's been great yeah actually i wanted to ask you about that uh, but but before i do we, we talk about injuries a little bit were you ever like really injured like you know broken stuff <laughs> and or things that actually made you think whoa this is dangerous or this is gonna slow me down or no 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 none whatsoever Knock on wood. That's good. Knock on wood. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, uh, no broken bones ever. I have always been pretty lucky. And I mean, it had definitely like a lot of that park stuff. It always, and I'm sure some other riders would agree. It's very intense to, as a flatlander, there's something about us. I don't know what it is like. I mean, I know I talk about like years since the beginning, like hybrid riding and having it hand in hand and doing it all. But, you know, there, you do get used to like with flatland, it has a certain type of feel it's a very different field than throwing yourself down stairs, you know, yes. and I know that's yeah. over, maybe that's oversimplifying it, but it is a very intense feeling and yeah, no serious injuries, just like the odd sprain here and there, mostly around that time during trips and stuff, you'd blow out your ankle and it would be fucked for like 10 days and you've got an ice pack on it all the time or taping up your wrists or 
crashing and putting your hands down and blowing out your forearm or your whatever and, uh, little things like that, which were in the greater scheme of things, just like little blips that just kind of went away and you were good. Nothing that like kept me off my bike for any extended period of time or anything like that. Did you take care of your body, like doing stretches and, and things like that? Or I've always taken care of my body in terms of nutrition. I'm talking going back to like when I was 13, 14 years old riding, I was eating really well, like really healthy. And I've always kind of kept it that way. Um, like Dairy Queen and McDonald's? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, obviously, you know, like you're on trips and shit and you're, and you're forced to eat garbage and things like that. But I've always been of the, my wife makes fun of me, you know, I'm kind of like healthy guy, you know, I've always kind of, my diet has always been pretty, pretty targeted um, <laughs> for lack of a better word. But uh, yeah, as far as like stretching, never the best at, at like consistently I am now, but I wasn't, Oh, shout out to Scott Agnes in Portland. Yeah, taught me some great stretches did some good training with him last year um he got me like added a lot of flexibility and really like helped me so that's really cool i think jamie worked with him too yeah yeah I he's helping a lot of writers even, that's cool i didn't even know that jamie worked with him too i just heard it on the podcast which was super funny yeah just like stretching things like that a little bit but never anything too consistent um but at the same time never really had too many problems never had any joint problems tendon problems always worked pretty well so you know just regular stuff like the odd lower back thing here and there but nothing too crazy but even not really any of that these days because i've been stretching more and doing better so probably should have been doing it since the beginning but um, um we, overall we're young and we don't think about it yeah yeah before we move on to your your move to new york um i want to go back a little bit to competition In your eyes, who were your uh, your main competitors when you were competing? You know, honestly, I'm not a competitive person, really, in that sense. I People might laugh at this comment, but I've never really thought about contests like that at all. And I think that maybe that was a bit of an asset for me. I never, I'm, I wouldn't say I didn't take them seriously, but I didn't think of them in terms of beating someone or beating people. The only, I mean, this sounds really cliche, but the only person I was competing with was myself. Like it was my only goal out there always. I didn't even think about sponsors. I didn't think about pleasing a sponsor ever, 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 ever. Maybe because I was just lucky that I didn't really have the type of sponsors that thought that way or like, I mean, obviously that's in their interest to like have one of their writers on the podium and things like that, but never pressured me too hard and I never went to a contest to do anything other than just do my best, the best that I know I could do. And if I didn't do the best that I knew I could do, that's when I might be a little like frustrated or there would be something like that or bummed. But yeah, no, I never really thought about beating anybody. I actually just felt like being friends with everybody. and We just laughed and had fun. And I know that other people thought like that. I know that other people would very much be competitive in kind of a very dark way. <laughs> really like when I would hear sometimes certain writers like the way that they would think about contests it would be kind of disturbing I'd be like whoa that's horrible that you think like that you know and I genuinely mean that I did ask a few writers a few people uh if they had a question for you and and you just answer one of uh, Dub's question actually Dub uh you know shout out to Dub in Montreal shout uh, out to Dub Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, his question was exactly what you answered. Like, uh, was competing ever important to you? And play, was placing important? And 
And if it was, why did you stop competing? But I guess it wasn't important. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as far as like, why did I stop competing? That's, I mean, honestly, I think there's no reason other than just that I moved into like, and we kind of already covered this, like mm -hmm. I moved into design, like I moved into my next thing. Um, you know, like I, riding was riding and riding is still riding and, and there's a purity to it for me. I was out there riding today. I was out there riding yesterday and I have always been riding. Like I actually don't document it as thoroughly as a lot of guys do these days. I have some, <laughs> if you actually believe that I'm riding, I, I, I've documented it somewhat, I meant. Um, yeah, the contest thing, it was just, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just designed for me. It was just design became my next riding career like it, i was as serious about that as i was about riding so it just was a natural takeover because i mean the truth is i'm you can say i'm a bit of an all or nothing person in the sense that you know like if i'm going to do contests i'm going to do them you know and that means the the riding and that means the riding for fun but also like taking them seriously in my own way and if i'm not going to do that then i don't really want to compete you know i like being at contests i love everyone you know in this all in the sport i have nothing but love and friends one thing that's been really cool about judging which i know i'm assuming we'll probably talk a little bit about that was uh, going to be my next topic yes yeah with judging uh is that judging has allowed that like judging has allowed me to to like be a part of it in that sense and like still contribute and like for various reasons but like also just still be there you know with everybody but not compete just um have another role you know, I guess if you want to put is that it that important? Way. Yeah. Is that important to you to contribute to the sport of BMX in general? Is like, you know, helping it grow or, or sustain? It's a good question. Yeah. I love to see BMX grow and I love to see it evolve. I'm a guy who's always like done multiple things. You can lead the, the, the single life and you can lead the double life. It's the triple life that gets you, you know, and it's like in terms of busyness and in terms of dividing yourself up and I, I feel that I just naturally, because I'm involved in so many different things, design as one other example outside of writing, I, I maybe just don't have time or the bandwidth to like really put a whole lot else more into it, you know, but like, but as far and, and I would, but I would love to see it grow. Like, I guess I mean, like in terms of putting on events and things like that, I just don't have the bandwidth or the time to do that kind of thing. And that's honestly never really been a thing that I've really been that interested in, you know, just as an example. I mean, there's so many different ways you can help the sport grow. I feel like I've always tried to take any opportunity that's come my way where I can, and I'm, I know a lot of guys more now than ever, when you have an opportunity to, to put BMX in a place where it wouldn't normally be, I think that's always a good thing because it just gets, you know, in front of a, the eyes of a whole bunch of new people, you know, and that's always great. And there's a lot of riders now more, as I said, now more than ever because of social media and stuff that are doing that and stuff. And, but it's just not really my, at, at this current moment, it's not really my number one priority, but it is still in my everyday life, you know? Right. Going back to judging, which is a way to contribute. This is a nice way of contributing. And, and yeah. there is there has been some shift into how, at least in Flatland and in, in, in BMX Park Street in, in, as well, where, you know, UCI has come, uh, you know, has come not to take over, but has taken a, a greater part. But I remember you judging some contests in Japan as well. Um, was it... 
do you enjoy judging? Is it something that you you find challenging? Is it something that you know you get asked to do a lot? I know we got you know we just got out of, or we're getting out of the pandemic, and so we started to travel again, yeah, so it's yeah. easier. A lot of question at once, but on on your judging experience, let's see. No, I get it. Um, yeah, I mean, I said before that you know I like obviously I love being there. By no means is like do, doing judging. Do I think judging is awesome because I get to be at these contests and not compete? That's not what I meant. Um, it is that. It is like a way to contribute. And like as far as riders who are competing currently, you know, and I, and I can attest because I was out there too, you know, like it's important to have people on the judging panel you can trust. And it's important to have a panel of judges that's diverse in terms of like rider riding perspectives and styles. I like to hope that I offer a unique perspective as a writer on the judging panel. Um, I've been told that I do. And I think that that's why I was continuously put on the panels of the contest. Um, yes, <laughs> the, the virus, like the pandemic, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it like thinned out, everything thinned out for everybody. Um, but uh, before, like right before that, it was busy, like really busy. Like I felt like pretty, pretty full on there in like the, the year leading up or months leading up specifically um and then yeah i mean then yeah now it's picking back up again and is it different uh, now that uh uh sorry to interrupt you like you know um you you just judged the arkansas contests uh that scott o'brien put together shout out to scott by the way this was a uh, a uci contest meaning that there are more rules and especially or not especially but there, there are also more rules from a judging point of view like you need to have some credential did you did you have to do something like go to a seminar or learn some stuff for judging or was it pretty cool i was originally i think supposed to be part of uci like right right when i actually first moved to new york and um typically what you do is like and i don't know if you're gonna have to cut this out because I, I, i'm not sure how much of this is supposed to be divulged publicly but I guess I can try and give like the sort of not, not to take it too serious, so seriously, but it is like yeah. pretty serious. Like the UCI, it's like, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's legit. Right. So, um, I mean, really, yeah. Like they have meetings supposedly like once a year in a various place where all the judges come together and it's, I guess you could call it, it's not really a seminar, but it's like a meeting and ever all it's like a judges meeting and everyone talks about stuff. And we talk about like, just like the state of the sport and like what's happening and the, the rules and like how that applies to the, what it means for the riders, what it means, you know, all that kind of expected stuff. So originally I was supposed to do that years ago, but then I had just come to New York in my apartment in Brooklyn that had no furniture. It was empty. And I being asked to go do this, this UCI thing. And I was like, I unfortunately can't. And this is again, where design kind of devours things like where I can't participate. So I, I just couldn't go. I was just had too many things going at the time that, but there was a stretch of time where I didn't really do any judging and stuff, maybe 2018 or 2019, I guess it was, then stuff started to heat up again. And, uh, and I wanted, I really was like kind of rearranged some things. I like rearranged my design practice a little bit different. So I had a little bit more time to ride and do some more stuff I wanted to do. And, and I got asked to come over, uh, A, for the Worlds in China, the World Cup in China. And then also then they had a judges meeting in Portugal. So I did all that. You, yeah, basically, that's what you have to do. And then you you get, you get licensed, you know, we would get licensed. But I mean, obviously, to be part of those things, you have to be like an experienced rider. So I mean, that's the UCI thing. But I think overall, like, as far as being like, 
in terms of judging, I do think if you're going to judge a pro contest, you do need to have been a pro, you know, and things like that. I think Frank commented on that. In fact, yeah, Frank yeah. said something that kind of resonated with me. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Frank say uh, to be a judge, you need to have at least made like a final at some point? And I think that as a pro, and I think that that's correct. To understand um, the that, pressure and and, and what it takes know? to get like, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How, how are you going to know what what's going on out there? Like, how are you going to know, like, if you've never done it, you know? So it's 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 a part of it. And um, yes, I love it. It's I really love being a part of it. I love hopefully being a guy that I'm trusted on that panel by the riders. That's great. And but like being trusted and being part of producing a fair content. Definitely there's a looseness to events like like private events it's a it's less strict like a voodoo jam first thing that pops into my head like that's a obviously is is so legit in terms of like the contest planning structure judging all that stuff it's solid but i but i think that it's but it's not like like uci is there's there's a rule book and there's like protocol and there's pra certain practices that are in place and it's very serious You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, riders are getting piss tested, you know, at, at some of these events, you know, like the the World Cup and things like that. So it's very it's gone to another tier. And I, I think that I can say that maybe there was a little bit of looseness and things like that. But um, but yeah, as far as like protocol and things, it is very professional. And I'm probably more professional now. Uh, and I'm sure everyone I know that everyone's more professional now than they've ever been in terms of like how they conduct themselves as a judge and things like that. Um, but as far as like, yeah, my own personal judging, like you, yeah, like I very much, I'm, I wouldn't go as far to say like I'm proud of it. I mean, I. No, I, maybe it's not the right but word, I, but I'm saying like you stand by by how you judge. I do. I do. I, I have no, you mentioned or you asked me earlier, like, do I find it easy? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think that writing is a language. I think that when you've lived it, done it, written it you know what's going on on the bike, on the floor, and maybe even in some ways in the head of the rider. That's how well you know it, surprisingly. Uh, I was even surprised that, to know it that well. And that's a bit of an intense claim, but it's like, it is a language, you learn it, and then you apply that in the judging process. And th that language comes so fluently to me, like when I watch these contests and I watch this stuff, it's so easy for me to know what is what and what's harder than something and what's more creative than something and where to put that and how. Um, I actually have no issues whatsoever doing that stuff. I find judging flows so naturally for me, just for me personally. And as far as like how the riders perceive the result, well, I mean, that's, I don't know, you know, like it's in some ways, some people might find it subjective. There's a, there's a subjective component. I think that um, honestly, in my personal experience, I've only had people ever come up and say, you guys did a great job. I've never, I've, I've, I've been to contests where I've been a writer and I've seen people go up to judges and say, what is going on here? What happened? This is ridiculous. And I know that there's some notorious contests in the bike, in flatland and bike history where there's been some pretty wild calls made on certain things that are like, whoa, really? Um, my personal experiences have only just been delightful experiences in terms of judging and, um, I, I really enjoy it. It, like I said, it comes very natural to do it. So, it's cool. Good to know. Good to know. All right. So, uh, going back to your uh, your work as a designer and your practice. So, you started it in Vancouver, but then in 2016 or 17, you you moved to New York. Was it for that, or was it for other reasons? 
Uh, it was for that, yeah, for design. So I had my own um, studio that I had started in Vancouver, and we started it in 2010 or 2011 or something like that. And we grew from two to 10 people. And uh, it was great. I mean, one thing that happened, and I don't want to bore the bike crowd with this stuff, but basically in design, it's like, you know, you you start off and you you have a certain type of design you do like we did like branding and and things like that um and then we moved a little bit into digital uh doing some digital stuff and the, the team i mean it was becoming interesting it's one thing to be two people and it's another to be to be managing you know eight you know it's crazy or, or six or seven or whatever um below the, the management team but like but yeah as an owner it's a lot and uh it, which was great. I mean, it was it was awesome. We had a really excellent studio in Gastown, which obviously you know where that is, mm-hmm. um, and it was lovely. Uh, we were also doing some product design for some breweries and doing some beer and some spirits for some distilleries and things like that. And um, one thing that's really cool about that aspect of design is it's a very dark, a very dark art, is what they call it. Is that designing liquor is as old as the ages. You know, it's pretty cool. So there's like all kinds of companies and breweries distilleries all these companies with crazy stories and things they're doing and it's fascinating and it's it's spirits it's alcohol it's cocktail you know it's like it's all kinds of stuff it's a you know the culture of that itself is a little weird but just from like the alcohol culture is a bit weird but like it's this the in the purest sense spirits design and it's great and um so there's a big boom in vancouver of independent breweries and distilleries opening up right at that time and so we were getting a lot of that work and i loved it and i just kind of took it on and and just started doing all these products and doing all this stuff for all these companies but like the, the what we were doing with the existing company was not so much focusing on that and i really wanted to do that and i thought well maybe i should just leave uh just be bought out leave and i should just start my own practice or be freelance and just only do this so I did. I was able to ride more. I was able to freelance and just do this and have one-on-one relationships with these distilleries and these companies it was excellent. And then uh, I got connected with this company in New York. You know, it's kind of weird. I, I feel like at that point, I'd never really had for any extended period of time, any real kind of job, like nine to five job. Because even like for yourself the whole time, it's like, it's just free for all kind of hours. You're doing your thing you're in control and you own it. So it's sort of like mm-hmm. loose, right? But um, yeah, this, there's this company in New York that they are world known for uh, doing specifically only really top tier world known design for spirits and stuff like this. So I got connected to them and then they brought me over for a project and then I just stayed. So that was kind of it. But it was really cool. They paid for everything and brought me over and I had a work permit and I just moved to New York. It's just like kind of all of a sudden it was just like, boom. And then I was just in Brooklyn. <laughs> so you're an employee for them or are you a consultant? What does that work? I was a consultant at first. And then I worked on some projects, some some pretty big projects uh, for like Centauri and some other big ones. And, I have some um, here. You do, huh? Yeah, <laughs> some big ones. It was great. And they said, we'd love you to stay, you know, and then that ended up kind of becoming like one of my most important like a full-time job. So they kind of really devoured me for like a couple of years. But at the same time, 
and I, I'm getting a little too far away from bikes here, so sorry. But uh, all good. Um, no, 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 it's good. It's good. It is all connected, if you can believe this. But um, yeah. it is amazing, like how much, even in those situations, like in the middle of New York City, working at this studio, doing crazy creative glass design for bottles and whiskey and you know tequila, all this crazy stuff. But it's amazing how like the owners are like totally into the fact that I rode BMX and they're like, they always ask me about it and they're talking to me about it and things like that. And it's amazing how much that kind of carries over into certain completely unrelated aspects in life. I'm sure a lot of people will agree with that, but it was great. It was kind of like from a design perspective, it was, I mean, it's such a high level of design skill there that it actually like really shaped me more and like actually took me like, I, I kind of like think about riding like, there's like a certain place you're at in certain things you do. You can always just tear up to this whole other tier, you know, and like really refine your skills and like push what you're doing even further. And you can always keep going and there's no end and design. I mean, it was so eye opening, like how I could just be doing this. And then all of a sudden I'm like doing this other thing. And, um, and it was just such an eye opener and totally changed me. So really, really cool. Push me to be a better designer. And then, um, and then now I'm freelance. So now I just am back working for myself again. I'm still in New York living in Woodstock with my wife, Kate. And uh, we're, yeah, that Woodstock. <laughs> that Woodstock, not, yeah. Where, not where Woodstock happened. And the real story is that it happened further away, but it was supposed to happen in Woodstock and uh, the festival. And then, but yeah, but it's still, this place has a lot of that fame associated with it, but um, yeah, really weird, cool place we live. And so now because I'm freelancing again, I'm still doing spirits now for all stuff in Canada and then all stuff here in the US. And then now I get to ride on my own schedule. I'm riding all the time. So it's great. For a few years, uh, Matthias was living in New York. And so you guys were uh, riding together. Yeah, that was fun because Matthias and I have always been close because we're sort of like, you know, as riders, like we're very aligned and as people. And I think, um, he yeah he moved uh, his his girl Constance she lived here already and then he moved here and then he was always kind of in and out but generally he was around but it was just really nice to have him you know here and have a such a like family so close to just ride with and stuff and uh, Matt Saint Gilles was also yep. here people remember Matt um, Matt Saint Gilles happened to be living in Brooklyn really close to me. Uh, he just texted me one day. He said, are you in Brooklyn? And I had already been there for months. And he's, I'm like, yeah. And then we just met up and we started riding together a bunch. Um, that was before Matias got here. And then it was great. So that was really good. But then um, but then I moved out of the city and now I'm upstate. And then Matias moved. He's out and back in France. And then Matt lives somewhere else now. So um, it's kind of broken up a little bit. I do miss having those guys to ride with. That was pretty sick. But Matias does come back. Like he was back here last year. Uh, or like in the fall or whatever we were yeah doing. for some project yeah are you more of a, a lone rider or you enjoy to ride with other people you kind of answered that question before but yeah generally speaking i'm, I'm kind of 50 50 like i mean i i love riding with people i love riding but you know as like you get at this point in your riding career i'm pretty specific about who i ride with like there's people that not certain people but certain types that i'm that maybe take it too seriously for me and that I struggle riding with those people a little bit, but um, I love people who just have fun with it and don't take it so seriously, you know, because I think you can get to the same place in terms of whatever it is you're doing on a bike um, without being so intense about it, you know? Um, but I love people that just still laugh when they ride, you know, and 
there's a lot of guys like that. It's great. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we've gone to a lot of uh, kind of a lot of things. I know we could talk for hours, but I also want to go through a number of questions that I ask a few people to ask you. Some of them sure. are pretty funny and some of them are, are more a bit more serious. You, I think you know everybody uh, who's asked the question uh, and some guys actually have a, a number of questions. So I'm going to I'm going to ask oh, wow. them in different orders. Your friend, you mentioned him, uh, Shane Neville, had a bunch of questions for you. So I'm going to ask the uh, the first one he asked was, what are the similarities between graphic design and Flatland that you find? And at the oh, same yeah. time, I, I'll second one he has is like, looking back, what signature product for Flatland are you the most proud of? For me, writing was always about trying to push to do maybe just things I hadn't seen before, you know, like those are the things that obviously, I mean, that's common, I know, but those are the things that excited me the most was, and that's the most creative part of it is like, it's, it's just always like pushing to do the, something new and it can be weird. It can be totally unexpected. And that's cool. For me, the similarity is just the, the pursuit of originality or the pursuit of something new, you know, creatively, creatively something new. Yeah. I think that's the best thing best thing i All can right. say about it it's a difficult process like when you learn something new on a bike it's hard like you don't know i mean it's like yeah i'm sure you know it's possible but i mean it's always the things i've loved most are the things that are just the most unexpected and i like that in design too and i think that both of those are such creative endeavors and such creative things that it's an arena to be able to do that and that's one of the things i love so much about them what product were you are you the most proud of what Flash product? product? It's, I mean, it's it's old now, but it was more just what it represents. I guess I'm the most proud of that the We the People frame a long time ago. I think that I I, I did a post a little while ago because I was talking to Klaus and I had some photos that he had sent me of just like old product shots and stuff like that that we had of the old bikes. And I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but it does trip me out that you can look at that frame design if someone wanted to geek out on that. If you look at the frame design now. It was designed in 2002, and then you look at it in 2022, and you can't really tell what era it's from. I think that's cool, and I, that's what makes me proud of it, is that the timelessness of it, and that it was unique at the time where people were riding a lot of squirrely, macaroni, bendy bikes and stuff, and it was just straight double triangle. It was like exactly what you need, um, stripped of any gimmicks. And I love that. I don't like gimmicks. Do you collect any of the old bikes, your, your old things? Or? Uh, no, but uh, I have, uh, I think I do have possibly the first ever div frame might be in my parents' garage on a shelf somewhere. Like it, I think she, they still have it. Um, and then I keep it think i have my first mcneil frame which was neon yellow i think that's somewhere yeah, in storage it all in canada so it's a blur to me at this point do you, but, uh, that's actually a question i wanted to ask you do you sometimes come back to vancouver you still have family here i do yeah my parents everybody yeah everybody lives in vancouver yeah it's uh um i haven't been back in about almost three years but a lot of that's been to do with the pandemic yeah. and the virus stuff because It's been really tricky. Yeah, there was a couple of dicey moments for me traveling, like when the that first the whole thing first dropped, being in situations where I, uh, you know, having a work a work visa in the U.S. and things like that is. Mm. Um, I don't have that problem anymore because I'm like fully able to be here now. Um, like I'm yeah. permanent resident here. But uh, shout out yeah. to that. 
Talking about travel, your friend uh, Raphael Chiquet is asking, so Vancouver <laughs> to NYC, what's next, Paris? <laughs> oh, shit. It would be, I think. I love Paris. Full love for the question. I love that question. Shout out to Raph. Honestly, yeah, like, not, not to be a, a bummer, but yeah, like, moving countries, that's hard. Holy yeah. shit, that's hard. It's a long process. It's, it is. It's crazy. Yeah, Do you hoard a lot of stuff? Do you have a lot of stuff? Like, if you were to move, like, your house is full of shit or no? No, 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 nothing. It, and it wasn't like that. Here now, it's a little different because Kate and I just bought this house last year in, uh, in Woodstock, as I said. And this is all very new. Like, this room I'm sitting in and all this stuff, this is all, like, barely even a year old that all this is, outside of that, lived pretty minimally. So, yeah, no, not a whole lot of, like, not no hoarding shit or anything like that. But uh Um, as far as moving to a place like Paris, that would be awesome. But yeah, I don't see it happening right at this moment. <laughs> But it would be Paris or yeah. Japan. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Your fellow judge, Ryan Russell, is asking, <laughs> how did pumping become a thing? And what's up with the cuff sleeves? <laughs> <laughs> what's up with... Oh, that's good. The cuff sleeve? Yeah. Um, well, the cuff sleeves, it's just to show show any muscle i have cuff sleeve i don't even remember having cuff sleeves around ryan what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> i seem uh, to recall some pictures actually with the thing no no it's true the other oh yeah pumping crazy um that's a good one that's a good question pumping was because i didn't really know how to scuff a lot of stuff or i just didn't even want to learn it pumping from what i remember was like if, if i can think of in bike riding any sort of natural tendency or natural reaction I had to something as a as a rider that was it I didn't even think about it I just did it and I I don't think I had even really seen it before and I it just sort of I just did it one time and then it was like oh I don't need to scuff because I can just do that and then it kind of became a thing within my riding and then I think a lot you know and now it's like nobody scuffs right I think at the time people were just doing either one kick or just straight rolling, which of course is much harder because you don't have this like foot saving you and doing all this stuff. It's kind of like do or die, which I love that component of it too. So I don't know. I just found riding to be way more fun in that sense to be, to be pumping. There's been a few times where people have told me that I was like one of the first riders to do it, if not the first. And honestly, uh, if that's true, I'm so honored and so stoked because like, if that is true, if there's any <laughs> contribution I would have liked to potentially make in bike riding. If that's it, I'm happy about that. It's yeah. yeah. But you know about the provinces in Canada and there's uh, the, the province of Saskatchewan. There's a couple of riders there. And then your friend Pete Olson is asking, Pete? so yeah, since we talk about, about style, where did your style come from? And today, what inspires you to keep riding? Yeah. Um, however you would sum up style-wise, whatever my riding is or whatever, I think it's sort of a, um, a mix of all the earlier influences I had, like Jason Brown and Ferris and Steve Fong and all those guys. And it's a mix of them. And then it kind of just became something me, you know, like I guess. And then um, I just sort of grabbed all my favorite stuff and then just, and then it evolves further from there. What inspires you today? Uh, what ride. inspires me today? And, yeah. People who are not in the industry who know that I was a bike rider, they go, do you still ride? I go, yeah. I say it's kind of like surfing. You just don't put it down. There's a purity to it, like once it's in you and once you 
it's become a part of you. And like once, like I, I don't feel normal and I never have. I feel like there's a lot of riders who I knew who are like bigger pros who maybe, as I said, maybe had a bit of a darker perspective on riding and it kind of burned them out or mm. they quit because they ended up hating it or there's, there's all kinds, but like, there's a, a bit of that. I feel like I'm lucky in the sense that riding has always been so positive and it's stayed that way to this day. And sometimes I just want to do it and I don't want to film and I don't, I just want to just be out there and I don't need to document it. And that it's just, are you still learning tricks? Are you still learning stuff? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I think so. I mean, I, I think I've always got a few things in the works. I think riding will forever be the ongoing unfinished project. And I think that a lot okay. of guys will say the same thing. Um, so that said, I think, uh, <laughs> I can think in my head, I've got like, four or five tricks I'm working on and I chip away at them every time I'm out there. And then until I get it, you know, and then before it was a little different because if I was always riding, I would learn them faster and I, or I would make it my purpose to learn that one. And mm. then I would get it, get it on tape and move on or get it, dial it, bring it to the contest or something like that. Whereas it's not like that now it's has a purity to it for me now where I can just do what I want. And I'm still so motivated by um, now everything is such a shit mix of, of everything else. It's such a hodgepodge of street and this and that and whatever. And I love that. I love trying new weird things. So like, I think there's a lot of really modern riding that can still be done. You know, I say, th I think mm -hmm. that there's no end to flatland and that's the beauty of it. And that motivates me, you know, also like that creative pursuit, which is the same thing I said about design. It's <laughs> that's right. So in fact, because you talk about that, Uh, another question from Shane. If you could go back in time and give 15-year-old Travis riding at Coquitlam Center parking lot a piece of advice, what would it be? That's a tough one. Yeah, like like I said, I, I always enjoyed riding, but you know, I would put pressure on myself to do the best I could or to achieve that trick that I was learning or whatever, uh, whatever was important at the time. And I think one thing I would say is to just chill, tell that kid to just relax a little bit, just keep doing your thing and just, it'll be okay. And try not to worry because one thing I found, you know, as a kid is like, sometimes you, I'm not trying to make myself sound like I was a stress case or anything like that. because I really wasn't. And I'm sure Shane would say I wasn't a stress case, but I definitely had my moments where I was pretty serious about what I was doing. And you don't want to let good times pass because you're, too fixated on something or too stressed out about something it's better to just kind of like cool down chill out and just sort of go with it and uh i think that would be one of the best things that i would say to that kid all right all right back to uh, ryan russell now he has another question for you do you actually two questions do you enjoy working on on bmx design products more than uh working with other type of brands like in liquor for example and What do you think BMX could learn from those other industries? Wow. So I can't say I like working on one more than the other. I mean, it is all design. So I think I just kind of like it. I like all of it. Design for bikes stuff tends to be a lot more loose. It's a lot less restricted is just the best way to put it. And usually like if I'm approached about some bike stuff, it's kind of just I can just do whatever I want. And then I just work with a close friend who is probably also a bike rider and then we just come up with something that we get stoked on and then we just put it out there and that's cool working in liquor 
it's obviously quite restricted and very intense and very different type of industry, but it is very thrilling. Like when you go everywhere in the world and you see your products on the shelves at places and things like that, like that's got its own thrill. So it's cool. They're just different, but yeah. So I, I think I like it across the board pretty equally. I don't know as far as like what the bike world could learn from the liquor industry. Was that the, the question? Yeah, I, mean, I guess what it comes from is, you know, you, you alluded to that earlier and like it's a small market and so flatland even more, but Juvenile Bearings in general. And we, the industry as a whole has never found a way to grow beyond just, for example, like skateboarding has. Those brands and, and the people running those brands and the riders have, you know, been more financially successful, we can um, sort of say. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how to like, yeah, as far as the, the from what, the way you put it, like, you know, I think Flatland's just too weird sometimes. I think that like skateboarding has a lot of weirdness too. But at the same time, it's like, it's something that everybody can relate to. I think that Flatland just inherently is tough for people to relate to. It seems really hard or like, it seems so niche or like, the bike seems so weird that it, it just seems so specific, you know, that it's like not something that resonates on as much on a mass, you know? But um, from a designer point of view, is there a way to present it in a different way? Perhaps that those other industries are doing to, to promote their products that the bike industry isn't. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I think that's kind of asking me how a watch works. I don't really know if I can answer that one. That's that's pretty tricky. I mean, I'd have to think hard about that. I'm sure I could come up with an answer, but yeah, uh, I don't know if I can answer that one. Okay, all right. No, that's fine. One more, uh, one more from Shane, and one more from Pete, and then we go to the the top questions for you. Last one from Shane is: What's your favorite video section of yourself? Yeah, there there was a lot. Like, I mean, your video sections are hard. You work so hard, and then ideally, it comes out how you wanted to, or sort of jives the way you wanted to i think one of my favorites um was same thing daily with uh i remember dane beardsley did the, that video series and i remember he had asked me to do a video part i mean it was really old i mean i've done lots of video parts since then i think that that for me that was like one of my favorites because i also got to edit that one myself so i really got to like it wasn't the cleanest, but I enjoyed just making it really something that I creatively felt like was what I wanted. And um, that was probably my favorite. Yeah, but that was that was old. You know, it doesn't, it's your favorite, it's your favorite, regardless of what it is. And then one one more from Pete, Pete Olsen. How do you balance your art and writing or your design and writing, I guess he means? Yeah, that's a good one. One thing that's cool about being into something that's like as physical as bike riding and then being into something that's as deep mental as design and artwork and stuff there's obviously crossover and parallels in both for sure there's a lot of similarities but it's a good gear changer it feels really good to ride all day and then come home and do some design work cool down and do some design work it really feels like a natural thing it also feels good and it's a little harder but it feels good to spend some time designing and then I'm done with that. And then I go out and ride and sweat and like do what I want to do. It's a, such a nice contrast, I should say, between the two worlds. So I think they pretty naturally balance each other really well. And I think that that's just one lucky thing. Like I've always loved that is one's really supported the other one um, in so many ways, physically, cool. mentally, everything. All right. 
So now yeah. on a on a more lighter side from your your friend in Germany, Frank Lucas. So Frank <laughs> Lucas told me you should ask Travis to tell the story about the roller rink in Koblenz. The roller rink thing. Uh, I mean, basically, <laughs> I don't know, like there's this roller rink in uh, Koblenz that Frank and I would ride all the time. And I mean, the amount of hours we spent there was just unreal. You know, and everyone has spots like that. So we ride this spot. And then one day this guy shows up and he's there with his dad. It was like their family or whatever. And he's learning to roller skate. And it was just one of the weirdest things. Like he's, we're trying to ride and this guy's like rolling through and he's cutting us off and da -da -da, he's in the middle of the rink and he kept losing his balance. And for some reason, every time he would lose his balance, he would make this really loud, like, I'm going to try to do it for you because it fucking makes Frank laugh still to this day. But this guy <laughs> made this noise that was like, it would echo through the whole fucking park. And it was like, and it just made this weird fucking noise. And he kept doing it the entire time we were riding. So whatever, right? It's not very significant, but we, it just kind of stuck. So it was just something we did all the time. We do it all the time. We'd be like in a contest, like full on, like a, maybe even like a televised contest, mid run. And like, we're in the run and like mid combo in the contest run going, making this noise and Frank's like on the sideline or I'm on the sideline just fucking laughing our ass off and no one knows why the fuck we're making that noise. That is a very good story actually. <laughs> I guess it was like ways of not taking contests seriously or anything like that, but inside joke, uh, funny as fuck, still pretty funny, makes fun of that poor kid, has no idea. What's a regular day in the life of Travis? It's, uh, it's interesting now. It's, it's cool. Um, living up here in Woodstock in New York, I mean, uh, obviously I, I'd be lying if I would say that there's still not some adjustment to living in the U.S. And, and living in New York and stuff like that. But a day in the life, I mean, really, I it's great being able to freelance design, which gives me, as I said, time to ride. So basically the way it goes is I kind of get up at like seven, something like that. And then I mean, how much detail do you want me to get into? <laughs> is it is it really like, you know, you ride every Monday, every Wednesday, or is it always different? Is it, you know, you, it's a, you know, yeah. always morning, always afternoon, or it depends on the projects? And Yeah, it really depends on the project. It's, it's amazing how freestyle, like, I don't even honestly know if I could even describe to you what a day in the life is. It's just completely, I wouldn't go as far to say that it's reactive, because I, I'm pretty proactive about stuff that I do but it definitely is a pretty ever-changing and evolving schedule. Sometimes I'll ride at night. Sometimes I'll ride in the morning. Um, I have no specific days that I ride. I kind of ride wherever I see a window. Um, I work whenever there's like something needed. Uh, like it's kind of deadline based, I guess you could say. Um, I realize more and more how the way that I operate more and more these days is not normal. It's very freestyle, very, very freestyle. That's really the best word for it, which is funny. Does that anything to do with the pandemic or is it something that just came with the territory? Um, I think it is to do with the pandemic. I think a lot. I think since, since uh, going full freelance after that and then now, if you do work with any companies and things, everything's remote. So there's no expectation. It's just like that. So I think that it's, that's a huge factor. Um, and I love it, man. I think it's, I, I couldn't be happier with, with that type of setup for myself. A lot of people need that sort of structure and schedule. And I, I completely get that. I really, really do. Um, I would have thought that I would have needed that more than I do, but, um, but I am really enjoying at the moment, just, you know, my wife, Kate, like we, 
we're kind of both similar in that sense. We kind of just do whatever we feel throughout the day. And, you know, we have our things we have to get done and we get them done. And we have our commitments and we tend to those and then everything else kind of fits in between, which is really cool. So it's really, really cool. But I mean, um, at the moment, um, yeah, I mean, maybe a family's on the horizon. So that's going to maybe change things a little bit. Any BMX project on the horizon? Uh, filming something or traveling oh, yeah. to an event or something like that? Yeah, um, at the moment, um, like we wrapped up the UCI, the US championship in Arkansas, which was like a month ago or a few weeks ago mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Um, so we wrapped that up and then that was great. And then um, so now as far as events go, yeah, no, there's nothing really like locked in on the horizon quite yet. Um, it's still still things are pretty spread out, it feels like. Um, mm -hmm. So nothing like that. As far as BMX projects, I'm trying to think right now. I mean, really, as I said before, the like filming whenever I can is kind of an ongoing project. I really just want to try to <laughs> like, it's funny because I really don't film that many clips and stuff like that, but I do really enjoy it. I, I do like about Instagram is that um, it is a good place for as a writer, like a body of work to live, you know? And it's a platform to kind of continue building on that body of work. I think it'd be great to have like uh, your Instagram account, to have just a documentation of all your favorite tricks and even just experimenting stuff. It's a great place to just drop stuff and just have an overview, a macro view of, uh, of kind of all your stuff. And I, I love that about it. So I think that that's an ongoing project to to just keep trying and trying to push it but it's hard to find that time and getting in that headspace to just film and stuff for for new things um i think as if i was riding every single day as like a schedule like a great one is like i think a terry like terry and i talk about it a lot i mean he films so much he films every day i believe it is now and so that's such a great flow that i really like i'm envious of that um i think that my schedule is a little too loose being mixed with design as well that i can't quite get that yeah, flow it's going his, it's his full-time job i know he has some business ventures as well but uh yeah you know, he, yeah he does represent his sponsors terry and i keep in very close touch we try to whenever we are at a contest we try to meet up for an early morning coffee and have like a real nice face-to-face catch-up i mean terry and i have been friends for god it's been 20 something years now it's just a good example of like that kind of flow uh so yeah um and then as far as other projects i mean it feels like there's like pro bike projects on the bike, but I feel like I also have some projects that come down the pipe, which are bike projects, not on the bike, which is also kind of a bit of design bike crossover. Cool. So there's a, a fair bit of that. Some of it I can't talk about quite yet. Of course. Of all new. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. So that, which I really enjoy. I really enjoy working with my bike friends to, um, on some of their creative ventures and things that they're doing. I love being able to work on stuff like that. So there's going to be more of that for sure in the future, in the near future. Um, do you, have a, do you yeah. have a website or a place where people can check out where your, your work is? This is funny. So I do. I have a full portfolio, full body of work that's for uh, specifically for my spirits and cannabis stuff. Um, that's, I just focus, focus on it for that. It's password encoded because... Honestly, social media, websites, things like that have so little to do with what I do in terms of design. It's weird in the in the spirits world. Um, it's so secretive and it's so um, it's so deep in like you're going to laugh at this, but like non-disclosure agreements 
and like the alcohol game because everyone's competing with each other and i don't want to steal this idea and this concept because it's so tight right um dude this is my world is like that too oh yeah i'm sure it is i'm sure so you understand so yeah. like i have this body of work and i can't like i just i don't even want to take a chance to shoot for the wrong people seeing the wrong thing or or someone telling me that i can't share something or whatever so i keep it pretty like pretty stealth so it is there there's very much that as far as like my much bigger more serious stuff um i think that as far as like my other stuff that's like more chill you know like some business ventures that i have in canada and things like that that's all on my design instagram um and then i have a bike instagram so i really like kind of separate those two worlds um anyway i'll send it to you so you can see what i mean but uh yeah uh non-disclosure agreements and all this kind of legal stuff it's pretty pretty interesting but i mean a lot of people have that so. yep Well, that's a great, sorry. that's great, great question. I think we've been at it for over two hours. And so maybe we should wrap things up. And uh, I want to give you the opportunity to, you know, thank whoever you want to thank or bitch at whoever you want to bitch or uh, be philosophical at whatever you want to be. <laughs> It's up to you. Oh, fuck, that's so hard, man. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thinking of me and thanks for letting me do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, of course, of course. Uh, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't even know if I want to play the name game because it's like there's, old friends, new friends. I just want to thank all my friends. They know who they are um, and everyone that's always supported me over the years. And uh, everyone, I feel like just through my bike career, um, then and now, whatever, I, I, I feel so blessed and thankful to have been given the opportunities I was given by everyone and everyone, my whole, everything is so positive and I have so many great memories about bikes and stuff. So forever it will always be that way and i will continue to ride and uh, i hope to see everyone at some contests and events cool. and whatever else good well thanks so much travis that was really cool i'm gonna edit this and hopefully it'll come out in a couple of weeks i had a really good time thank you so much again and hopefully see you soon in vancouver yeah definitely man thank you all right Podcast.